chapter 19 this morning. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, and uh, just raise your hand where you're standing, and there's men coming up the aisles right now who would love to give you a Bible, and uh, so you can follow along with us, not only with your ears, but also with your eyes. We want everyone to hear the Word, but also to see the Word of God, so take advantage of that. And if you're visiting with us this morning on Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And one of the great things about that is that you can hit certain things that Jesus talks about or that he does that um, in some cases you might be tempted to just move away from it because there are easier things to preach from him. But when you head straight through it, you hit all of it. We want to hit all of it have it sown in our heart, and then what we do with it individually is our own doing. But from the pulpit, we're to hear everything God has to say and then have that option. So we pick things up, Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus has just got done telling a crowd that is accompanying him to Jerusalem. Uh, his final trip to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified, associated with the Feast of Pentecost. And he has just declared... For the Son of Man, verse 10, has come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, as they heard these things, the crowd that is traveling with him, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And therefore he said a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered them to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was when the king returned, and having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And then he came to the first, uh, then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Wow, a thousand percent. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas, five hundred percent. And likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And then another came saying, Master, this is your mina. Here it is, which I have kept put away in a napkin. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to the servant, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it at least with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. And for I say to you that to everyone who, ha who has will be given and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. We have never, ever been disappointed for obeying it, Lord. We love the path that simple obedience to your word puts us on and 
We love the life that we discover along that path. And we pray that you would open up your word to us today and give us a greater understanding of your will for us as your people and as your children in this world. And specifically for us, Lord, at this time in human history, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit today speaking to us individually, Lord. We want to be like Christ in this world. And so use this passage in our time studying your word toward that end, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The context of this parable that Jesus gives here is that he is either in the house of a man by the name of Zacchaeus in the city of Jericho, or he has just left the house and regained, uh, rejoined the crowd that is following him now on his final journey to uh, Jerusalem, where, as I said, he will be crucified for the sins of the world associated with the day or the feast of Pentecost. And Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, Passover... Jesus declared in verse 10 concerning himself, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now to the ear of the religious Jew, and they would listen a little differently than we would listen, when Jesus declared himself to be the one who has come to seek and to save that which was lost, they would have understood him to be declaring himself to be the Messiah. And now as Jesus has made that proclamation to this crowd, as they're following him now into Jerusalem to keep the feast of Passover, there is an added electricity now that's been introduced into the crowd, an added expectation and an excitement. And the excitement and the anticipation is is that Jesus is now going to walk into Jerusalem, that he is going to overthrow the Roman oppression, and that he is going to establish the messianic kingdom in the world, God's kingdom on the earth. The Old Testament scriptures declared concerning the coming of the Messiah and establishing a kingdom here on the earth, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9, that the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one and his name one. Psalm 22, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship you. In other words, the whole world without exception will worship the Lord during this uh, reign of the Messiah. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nation. Psalm 67 declared of this same messianic reign. God shall bless and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So these verses are in their hearts plus a hundred more that I could quote to you this morning where they knew when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish a kingdom in this world. And when they heard Jesus talk, they thought, wow, we are traveling with him just 17 miles. We're going to get to Jerusalem and he's going to do it. But Jesus knows something that the crowd doesn't know. And that is that the fulfillment of his work as the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom would occur over two comings. 
The Old Testament scriptures, they painted two very different portraits of the promised Messiah. One portrait, as you would look at the prophetic scriptures concerning the coming Messiah, it portrayed him as a conquering king, that he would come into the world, that he would overthrow the Gentile nations and these feeble kings that rule over them, and he would establish uh, a kingdom of righteousness all over the earth. And Psalm 2 is characteristic of those kind of prophecies concerning uh, the, the uh, conquering king view of the Messiah. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his great displeasure. Yet I have set my king my, on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me concerning the Messiah, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so when they read passages like that, and many others like that, they thought to themselves, all right, Messiah is going to come. He's going to just, uh, you know, with great force and, and determination, overthrow the corrupt governments of the world and establish his own. But the, the scriptures also describe the Messiah as a suffering savior. Uh, classic passage on that would be Isaiah chapter 53, describing the coming of Messiah 740 years before Jesus came into the world. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He'll, he will die. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So you had these two widely divergent views in the Old Testament Scripture concerning the Messiah who was to come. And how do you reconcile those two views? Well, I'll tell you how the Jewish rabbis did. They just chose in their preaching and in their teaching to emphasize the conquering king aspect of the coming of Messiah. And they deliberately chose to ignore or to minimize in their teaching of, of the Bible the suffering servant, the suffering savior verses in their teaching. It's always easier to preach a 
positive, you know, kind of message over one that is the opposite. And so they simply uh, majored on the one and didn't even minor at all on the other. They simply ignored it. So in everybody's mind, when the Messiah came, there wouldn't be any suffering for him that he would, he would come and be solely a conquering king. And this was the, the indoctrination. This was the understanding that, that they had. So Jesus comes along and he reconciles the two views of the Messiah in the Old Testament in a different way by revealing that those two descriptions of the same Messiah would be fulfilled in two comings. And that in Messiah's first coming, the description of Messiah, he would fulfill all of the passages that spoke of the Messiah as the suffering Savior, but that he would then come again a second time, and then in that second coming, he would fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies that had to do with the Messiah coming as a conquering king. And Jesus will do that yet in his second coming Come as a conquering king. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of it at length where he is going to come in a sword coming out of his mouth and riding on a horse with this angelic uh, or this uh, heavenly host coming with him and, and his name is the king of kings and the lord of lords even as we uh, sang this morning. And because Jesus knew that there would be this considerable block of time between his first coming and his second coming, at this point, we're running about 2,000 years and counting, that's a considerable block of time, he spoke a parable in order to instruct us as his disciples about how we are to conduct ourselves while we are waiting for his return. So this parable describes how we're to conduct ourselves as his disciples in between his two comings, the very time that we live in presently in human history. Now notice the parable itself, verse 12. In this parable we have a nobleman, we have a master, who goes to a far country uh, with the promise to return. And all of this is a picture of Jesus and what he was going to do in Jerusalem following his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He spoke to the disciples in John chapter 14, and he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, speaking of heaven, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus has left. Acts chapter uh, 1 tells us that he has ascended into heaven. He sits currently at the right hand of the Father, but he has promised to return and to establish his kingdom here on the earth. And so Jesus is telling the disciples that the final establishment of his kingdom on the earth is not going to be immediate. He's going away for an unknown period of time and then he will return to establish his kingdom. Now notice in verse 13 that the master instructs his servant again how we are to conduct ourselves in his absence until he returns. And the master does in that verse, he delivers a mina to each of his ten servants that are 
there before him. Each one receives the same coin, the same amount of money. And the mina was a Greek coin that was uh, pretty valuable. If you found a, a mina in your Christmas card, you did pretty good. Or you got a mina from somebody for your birthday. A mina was worth three months wages for a laboring man. So you take like a, a construction carpenter or a, a, a plumber or an electrician and you figure, I mean don't figure it right now in this recession in Modesto in terms of the trades, but what would uh, uh, that kind of person typically make in three months? And it's a sizable amount of money. We're talking about uh, thousands of dollars that have been entrusted now uh, to these servants. What that mina represents for us as Christians is the mina certainly seems to represent the gospel of salvation. The fact that each one of us as Christians has been entrusted with the message of the gospel. The good news of the fact that God sent his son into this world to be born into the world, to die on the cross, to purchase and the, the, the forgiveness of our sin, to be buried, to rise again on the third day, and that a simple trust in, in Him as our Savior would result in being born again, inheriting everlasting life, receiving personal forgiveness of sins. This gospel has been entrusted to each of us as Christians. The Apostle Paul, when you read his letters through the New Testament. I mean, you can't come away with any other view concerning him and his attitude toward the gospel than to realize that, when, that he viewed the gospel as a stewardship that had been given to him, as something that had been given to him, that message of the gospel to share with the rest of the world, that something indescribably valuable had been entrusted to him to take with him, with him throughout all of the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, Paul wrote to Timothy, which was committed to my trust. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So the master then instructs each one of these servants to occupy. He gives each one of them, us, a mina, something very, very valuable. And then he instructs in the parable them to occupy until I come. In the old King James, it says do business in the new King James. I like it in the old King James. It's clear in the new King James. It's just I learned it in the old King James and it's blessed my heart for about 30 years, and so I'm unwilling to be converted at this point, related to a verse or two, and this is one of them. Now, I should be converted, but I'm not. The word occupy there has come to mean something 
very different today than it meant at the time that the translators were translating the uh, King James Bible hundreds of years ago. When we talk about occupying, we use it to refer to someone who is taking up space or uh, they're, they're sitting someplace or they're doing something with their time. I occupy my evenings by reading novels. Or uh, we use the term occupy for someone who is a resident someplace. We occupied the same house for 20 years, we, we might say. Or we use it to, uh, for taking possession or the control of a place. Speaking of a military occupation or to hold an office. They occupy the office of the presidents of the United States. But in those days, the word occupy, at the time that the old King James was translated, it spoke of a traitor. And occupy was not a traitor, it was a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R. Someone who used or laid out what they had in the hopes of gaining even more. And so you have it in the New King James, do business until I come. So what Jesus is saying here is that in the same way that a businessman puts his money out into circulation in order to increase it or to enlarge it or to expand his business so too each of us as Christians has a responsibility to share the gospel with people within our sphere of influence in life in order that they might put their faith in Jesus as their Savior resulting in the expansion or the enlargement of the kingdom of God. I don't believe that the mina is speaking of gifting or calling. Sometimes people will interpret it that way because they don't like the pointedness of this passage speaking to us of Christians of the vital importance of sharing our faith. So often someone will look at this and say, well, it talks about the gifts and the callings that we have, the anointing that we have. The problem with that is this. That's represented when we get into Matthew chapter 25 and we talk about the parable of the talents. Because there five talents was given to one servant, two talents was given to a, another servant, one talent was given to another servant. In terms of calling... In terms of gifts of the Holy Spirit, in terms of offices that God calls us to as Christians, all things aren't equal. God gives certain people a greater sphere of influence than He gives somebody else. He gives some people multiple gifts of His Holy Spirit while He gives somebody else one or two. So this isn't talking about that kind of thing. Is talking about something that is equally given to every single servant, every single Christian, because every servant in the parable receives the same amount, one mina. Because every Christian, the parable teaches, has an equal responsibility to share the gospel with others, that the same gospel that has changed our lives and our eternities would then have an opportunity to change their lives and their eternities. And it is vital to God. And it is vital to Jesus here that every single one of us as Christians 
understand this and not only understand it, but to embrace it personally. The recognition that as a human being whose entire life and eternity has been changed by this gospel message, that as a result of that, we have a responsibility to then share that same message with others that haven't heard it around us. Each and every one of us who is saved here this morning walks in the richest, most wonderful, peaceful, beautiful, glorious life that a person could ever dream of knowing. We are saved this morning because someone was faithful to the message of the parable of the Mina. Somebody was faithful to declare the message to us or to somebody else who then ultimately declared it to us. And what somebody else has done for us, we have a responsibility to do for others. Jesus, of course, he makes, speaks this parable while he's on the way to be crucified, to pay the ultimate price to provide a gospel for the world, to provide, and the gospel means good news, it means great news. You take that gospel out of this world and there is no great news. In the face of life, in the face of the enemy of death, the face of understanding what life is about, there's no all good news, truly good news, that can hold up under the weight of this life and the life to come and death which stands between the both of them. The only good news is this gospel. Jesus paid the ultimate price to provide us with salvation and forgiveness, and each of us has a responsibility to let other people know about that. Otherwise, here's the tendency, and most of us in this room will recognize it. If we don't accept this responsibility in our lives personally, we will have the tendency to think that sharing the gospel with lost friends or lost family members or neighbors or classmates and, and, and that kind of thing, that that's the work of special Christians who have a special gift for that. They have a special personality for that. Somehow God has touched their lives and it's easier for them to do that than it is for me to do that. And the problem is is that it takes faith to share the gospel. It takes a death to self to share the gospel. And so without the strength of passages like this, I can fall into a Christianity and live as a Christian for decades and never share the gospel with another human being and think that I am right with God in that and think that's for other people. And the parable declares plainly that the sharing of this gospel is the responsibility of every single Christian. If I think that this is something that only unique Christians are supposed to do, then ultimately I'm typically trying to use that as an excuse for not doing it. But the problem with that is that one day this parable teaches us, and other passages teach us in the New Testament, 
we're going to each of us stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for our faithfulness to him and this particular calling upon our lives. Notice that the third man, the man who was unfaithful in his handling of the gospel, verses 20 through 26, he took his mina and he kept it hidden away in a handkerchief. He never shared the gospel with anyone, never put the gospel out into circulation of all of the other voices in the world and all of the other belief systems of the world and everybody else's opinions that's out there in in the world. And when he was confronted with his failure to do so, he tried he even he even tried to tries to blame god for it he offers two excuses let's see if we recognize uh, either of them he said number 1 to the lord when he returned i feared you because you are an austere man i don't know if it's true i read a story years ago about a man who went to some kind of a fishing village in I don't know if it was Massachusetts or Maine or something like that, wherever they would fish oysters. And the guy preached the whole sermon on God being an austere man. They thought he was saying an oyster man like him. They all gave their hearts to the Lord. I think that's like a Christian fable. I'll have to check Snopes on it. That's when preachers are grasping. I think they make those things up in their studies. But anyway, I've never forgotten it, obviously. So he said, I feared you because you are an oyster man, an austere man. In other words, I I knew, God, that you didn't like any kind of sloppiness, that you're very demanding about the things concerning you. And I was afraid that if I went out there and shared the gospel, I would mess the whole thing up and misrepresent you. The second excuse that he gives is in, in this whole declaring him to be an austere man and you're, you, know, you're, you, uh, uh, you collect, verse 22, what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. In other words, uh, Lord, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. I mean, I, I know that you're a very, very powerful man. You can do whatever you want. You can bring it for, you're going to bring forth fruit whether I'm faithful or not. So what does it matter whether I'm faithful or not? So now he's blaming God for his, his failure to be faithful in this area of his life. The fact that his life was, was unfruitful in all of this. And there's a lot of us that can fall into this tendency in terms of personal evangelism and just think, well, God is sovereign. God is almighty. He's going to save whoever he's going to save anyway. So it really doesn't matter whether I'm faithful to share the gospel or not. And there's a lot of Christians that kind of hide behind that thinking, or if they were to develop the reason why they don't share their faith, that is at the base of it. God's going to do it. It's going to be, I'm saved. He got through to me and used his sovereignty to do it, and, I, and I'm sure he'll get through to other people in the same way. So all of it, it doesn't really matter. But it matters to God. And the reason that it matters is that God has commanded us in a great commission to take this message out into the whole world and to make disciples. The whole point is, is that the master commanded him to do business until he returned, and the servant simply didn't do it. But the command was not, and it is not, optional. Notice that this third servant isn't some kind of an axe murderer. Not some kind of, you know, doesn't uh, have the 
scarlet letter on their sleeve. Probably a very, very nice person. Very, very polite kind of, of person. But he failed to share the gospel with anyone and he had disobeyed God's command in failing to do so. Now notice in verses 22 and 23 God's response to these excuses. God told the man that the real reason for his failure was that he was wicked. Ooh. I'll tell you, I, I hope I'm not the only one that feels the sting of this passage. I really feel it. My own life. Apparently, in the estimation of heaven, from the perspective of heaven, for a person to have reaped the unspeakably priceless benefits of the gospel in their own life and to live in that richness and in that beauty every single day and then to fail to tell others about it, that's a wicked way to live. And wickedness is the estimation that is, is placed uh, upon it. And the nobleman rebuked that unfaithful servant for not having done what was the, the, the least that was possible. If you had done anything, then there would be something to show for it, but you didn't even take it, mean it, and put it in the bank, and you would have at least gotten some interest from it, which isn't exactly hard. And, and the master destroys the logic uh, of the wicked servant's argument, stating that the logical response of a person who really did believe that God was that powerful would have, instead of going silent, the logical thing for the child of God would have been to take a step of faith in obedience, put the mina out there, put the gospel out there, and see what this powerful God that we believe him to be would then do with that gospel if we obeyed him. If you really do, did fear me, Jesus was saying, you would have obeyed me or served me, the master to the servant. So the point is there isn't any good reason for not sharing the gospel. And the fact of the matter is we don't do it because we don't want to do it, if we don't do it. Is this hard, the spiritual warfare that's associated with it? We don't want to seem like a kook in the world. So it takes a step of faith. There's some risks in doing it related to the relationships in our life. So there's all that kind of stuff that's in the middle of it. Very uncomfortable for our flesh, our fallen nature and all. But Jesus comes in and says there's no good excuse for not doing it. Again, very, very heavy parable that he gives here. Each of us has the responsibility to share the gospel within our sphere of influence in this world. Wherever God takes us in this world, wherever we're interacting with the world around us, God wants his gospel. Everybody else in the world has come out of their proverbial closets. I'm not just talking about one group. I'm just talking about Everything is allowed. Everybody is speaking their version of truth. Everybody is 
got people following this, these different versions. Everybody's got a platform. Everyone is zealot for the advancement of their views. And Jesus is simply saying to us as his people, we need to keep the gospel in the mix of the cultural conversation. We need to keep it in the middle of people's thinking. They need to give it consideration as an option to all of the other things that they're hearing. So just as that mina was to be kept in circulation, God wants the gospel kept in the mix of what everybody in this world is talking about and thinking about. And Jesus did the very thing with that chief tax collector Zacchaeus that we saw last week. He comes to him and, and he, and, and, and in a meeting with Zacchaeus and taking the time for evangelism there, he, he came and, and kept the gospel in the mix of everything else that was happening. Everywhere he went, he took that gospel with him. He came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. I can't save anyone, but I can seek to save the lost in this world as, as his disciples. And Jesus knows what we can very often lose sight of, and that is if the gospel is shared, it will bear fruit. We are, we are living proof of it. But what can happen to us over time is we begin to think, well, that was an odd thing that happened to me. And how God got my attention and how he saved me, you know, I don't know that he'll do that in another person's life. And we begin to think that our story is kind of an odd thing, but nobody else, there's nobody left out there anymore that will hear the gospel and respond to it. But Jesus knows that the gospel is a powerful, powerful thing all by itself. And you know why the gospel is powerful? Because the Lord will be faithful to say amen to it in people's hearts when they hear it. You say, boy, I've done some street witnessing or sharing with my family, and I don't think I always heard that amen from them. They got pretty upset. Strained the relationship, lost the relationship. I mean, they almost punched me in the nose. I had a guy threaten me with a pistol one time, street witnessing here in Modesto. Had it on his lap, pointed it at me, and said he was done listening to what I had to say. I was on his front porch. Well, I was done sharing, by the way. <laughs> All God wants, though, is he wants to have the privilege of saying amen to the message in somebody's heart after they hear it. Then it's his responsibility. Do you realize that statistically, the average person who comes to know the Lord does so the seventh time that they hear the gospel? So some of you, this was the first time, some of you the second time, some of you the fourteenth time, some of you the hundredth time. You just skewed the whole scale, but we're glad you're in. But on average, it about, takes about the seventh time, and then, and then they, they respond. If just one Christian is out there sharing their faith, it makes it easy for the world to just say, that's a kook. I know zillions of Christians that have never shared their faith with me. 
Don't tell me that being a Christian, you've got to share your faith. I mean, that guys a, he's a nutcase even among Christians. And they get, to, they get to blow the obedient off because of the silence of the others. And, and it's interesting, I think, that here's a person in a community like ours where somebody hears the gospel and they say, get out of here, you're a kook. And then the second person shares the gospel with them. And then the third person. And then the fourth person, all the way through the seventh person. Some of it's family, some of it's co-workers, somebody, don't do it on the boss's dime though. Somebody's witness in downtown. Somebody does this, somebody does that, and they start to think. For some of us, we're so thick, it takes kind of a concentrated mass of this kind of witnessing before we stop and we think to ourselves, maybe there's something to this. I think about how many people I know are Christians today on the basis of the fact that they were in a difficult place in their life and God brought the gospel to them twice in a day or twice within a week. And they thought to themselves, this is crazy that someone would share this with me the same week and just the concentration of it got their attention and made them realize, God is fishing for me. God is looking for me. So we see the importance that it isn't just 5% of the body of Christ or 50% of the body of Christ or 10% of the body of Christ that is sharing their faith. It takes the whole body of Christ for, for this thing that God is wanting to happen in the world to, uh, to happen. And so the parable tells us that during Jesus' absence that we are to be doing what he already demonstrated in his contact with Zacchaeus. We're to take the gospel uh, like he did everywhere we go in life. It will bear fruit. We will be rewarded for it. Silence is the great threat. Now, just a couple of comments on this whole one day given account for our faithfulness to share the gospel. The Bible does teach that for us as Christians, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes people read that, I thought I was saved. Well, the white throne judgment is a judgment we will never stand before the Lord on because of our faith in Christ. That has to do with salvation. We will never, never stand. Heaven is a, is a sealed deal for us as a Christian. But the Bible does teach teach the fact that we're going to one day stand before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bema seat refers to a reward seat where each of us will personally, won't stand there before the Lord as a church. The pastors on this church, we're not going to stand before the Lord as, as a group. Every one of us individually are going to stand before the Lord. We're going to look right into his eyes. And Jesus wants this to be a wonderful time, by the way. It's not, do you realize you're going to... And you're going to look into those baby browns of his? And what, and what is he going to... Not that. He's telling us ahead of time. So that can be a blessing for him. can be a blessing for us. But we will stand before him individually. And each of us will give an account for our faithfulness to the ministry that he's called us to. And part of that ministry is to share the gospel. Our presence in heaven is guaranteed by our faith in Christ. Our position in heaven is determined by our faithfulness to God's call upon our lives. I already think I'm going to be up there. People talk about crowns and things like that, you know. I mean, I, 
I don't know how big my crown will be. I think it will be a, a beanie with a propeller. But I, I at least want to have it. I want to have something to cast before that throne in heaven. I wouldn't want to be up there for eternity and watch people casting their crowns before the Lord and say, I wonder what that feels like. I want to have a crown. I want to have a beanie to throw before the Lord. Even the unfaithful servant doesn't share the judgment of Christ's enemies here in verse 27. He ends up in heaven. He just doesn't have the reward that Christ would want him to have and that one day he'll desire to have. Now let me close with this application. The Bible teaches that in the last days in this world, things are going to get worse and worse. This world is going to unravel before our very eyes. And uh, on, on every level that you can think about, all fronts. The Bible teaches that before the second coming of Jesus, that ultimately the problems will become so great in this world that there will be no human solution for them. Jesus describes it in Luke's Gospel. The condition of the world will be distress of nations with perplexity. And the word perplexity means no way out. All of the king's men, all of the whatever, they can't put it back together again like trying to do right now. And I'll tell you, we can feel the contractions of it even now as the rapture is approaching. Things are going to unravel with nations. Nations warring against nations. Kingdom against kingdom. That talks about insurrection. Rival groups within countries. An open battle against one another for the control of, of that country. How much of the world is in that condition today? Economically, the world is going to unravel. Militarily, socially, morally, spiritually. And one of the things that will... The temptation that we will have as Christians as these problems get bigger and bigger and bigger is to begin to think to ourselves, the problems are so big, they are so outside of my control, what difference can I make in the middle of all of this? It's unraveling like crazy. That's not our problem. That's God's problem. Our responsibility is to simply occupy till he comes. Has God called you to go to college? Then go to college and take the gospel with you. But wait a second, I mean, what if the rapture occurs during my sophomore year? Then he will find you right where he sent you, being faithful to his calling upon your life. Has God called you to be a wife and a mother? Then be a wife and a mother, but be sure and take the gospel along. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the Lord is, if the Lord's coming back soon, shouldn't I go out into the mission field somewhere? No, not unless that's His will for you. If He's called you to marry and to raise godly children, then at the time of the rapture, He'll find you right where He wanted you to be and reward you for being faithful. Somebody else might say, well, as God has called you to be a farmer or to be a business owner, 
then do that. But don't forget your responsibility to keep the gospel in the mix of all the other voices that are speaking in the world. Someone can think as God calls us to these different things that we tend to look at as just solely secular occupations or whatever it might be and think, well, you know, isn't there something more spiritual that I, that I, I should be uh, doing with the Lord's return, you know, instead of farming or running a business or something like that? You think anybody can run a farm? You think anybody can run a business? No, he calls you and says, you occupy until I come. Take care of business for the Lord's glory, and then at the time of the rapture, he will find you being faithful in exactly the place that he's called you to be a witness for him in the world. And then notice finally, the other one was a false finally. I didn't mean it. But I want to close in verse 27. Jesus warns against his enemies. And his enemies are described in verse 14 as citizens during his absence who hated him and cried out, We will not have this man to reign over us. In just over a week, the morning of his crucifixion, a portion of that same crowd that's following him and a significant portion of the population in Jerusalem will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have him rule over us. But the same judgment is true of anyone who lives there three score and ten in California, year 2009, who looks and says, that gospel means nothing to me, that crucifixion means nothing to me, that death, that burial, that resurrection means nothing to me. I will not have that one, that man, that Jesus rule over me. Then as surely as a reward is coming to those who are faithful, judgment is coming to those who reject him. That's just the way that it is. The Bible teaches that every one of us will ultimately stand before Jesus and I will either face him as my Savior or as my judge. There's no middle ground on it. And Jesus loves you if you have never put your faith in him for salvation. He loves you. He has put that cross, he has put his blood between you and the judgment that your sin deserves. And he longs to save you this morning by trusting in the same gospel that he speaks about in this parable. How it is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And that when, when a person will put their trust in that salvation and in that Savior, we will be born again, receive new life, an everlasting life as a gift from God. That's what God wants to do in each of our lives here today. And that gift, because it is a gift, it's there for the receiving if we'll just ask for it. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They'll have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to move out of that crowd of being an enemy, a rejecter of that gospel and of the Savior that God has sent into the world, to now come into his family and become his follower. God loves you. He loved you so much he sent his son to provide you with a salvation. And he wants to save you 
this morning. Use the opportunity. Come and see one of these men or one of these women. If you need prayer for anything this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, most of us recognize every inch of the territory that this parable covers. And this truth of yours, if it is indeed true, really gets our attention. And Lord, you know how generally silent your people are concerning the gospel. And we just pray and ask that you would send upon each one of our lives today from your very throne in heaven that you would give us a love for people and a love for people's souls that is greater than our love for self-preservation and comfort, Lord, and safety. We pray that the same Spirit, in the same measure, that was upon the Apostle Paul that would cause him to say, Yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would baptize us with your Holy Spirit and freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit until that characterizes our lives and our Christian walk with you. Lord, we don't want to do anything out of guilt. We don't want to do anything out of pure duty. We want to do it, Lord, out of a great love that you put in our hearts and out of a great thankfulness for what you have done in our lives and, Lord, out of a great confidence that the great thing that you have done in us that you will do in anyone and that everyone has a right to know about it. Lord, we pray for that spirit that we've asked for here this morning to begin to manifest itself and breaking us out of silence where needed to share, Lord, your truth and the only good news in this world everywhere you take us in this world from this day forward. We look to you for it, Lord. We plead with you for it, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.